Key Aero, your aviation destination. Military Aviation. Hello and welcome to episode 11 of the Air Warrior podcast. I'm your host Richard Thomas and this week we discuss the shootdown of the Russian Air Force IL-20 in September 2018 as it left Syrian airspace and examine the intelligence gathering role of the aircraft and the newer Tu-214 in Russian military service. All of that coming up of course a little later on in the show. The news this week. Swedish defense and aerospace provider Saab has said the T-7A program which together with Boeing will deliver a new jet training aircraft to the US Air Force, could reach milestone C, the point at which the program moves into the production and deployment phase in late 2022, ahead of transitioning to a more stable, low-rate initial production in 2023. The program was widely reported in June to purportedly be over a year behind schedule and saw a dip in financial year 2022 funding requests from $206 million to $189 million. The aircraft is intended to replace the T-38 Talon trainer currently in U.S. Air Force service. Mikhail Johansson, CEO at Saab, speaking during a July 21st briefing on the company's Q2 performance, stated that full-rate production could follow in the 2024-2025 timeframe, with the U.S. Air Force seeking roughly 400 aircraft. Unusually hot weather caused damage to the runway at RAF Bryce Norton, Oxfordshire, UK, on July the 18th, which resulted in the disruption of operations for almost a week, particularly with the Royal Air Force's Airbus A330 MRTT Voyager fleet. After two Voyagers landed at the Oxfordshire base on July the 18th, there were no further movements in or out until one finally escaped on July the 23rd, although conditions were still far from ideal for its departure. Due to the damaged runway, the airfield was temporarily closed to all movements from 0929 hours local time on July the 19th, the poor runway condition that led it to being declared code black, unusable. Local reports suggest the damage may be repaired by July the 26th, which will enable the base to return to routine operations. And finally, Dassault Aviation has delivered the first Rafale fighter to the Hellenic Air Force just six months after the contract signing by Greece for the acquisition of 18 aircraft in a 2.5 billion euro deal. In a ceremony at the company's Aviation Flight Test Center, Dassault said the first aircraft, as well as the next five platforms to come from the French Air and Space Force, will train Hellenic Air Force pilots and technicians before deploying to Tanagra Air Force Base near Athens, Greece. The deal will see six new and 12 second-hand Rafale fighters delivered. And that was the news. Time now for group editor Alan Warnes, who is in conversation with freelance journalist Tim Ripley on Russia's spy plane capabilities. We have today with us uh, Tim Ripley, a long-standing contributor to Air Forces Monthly. He's uh, written many a good article over the years, so thank you, Tim. Hello. Uh, (laughs) And today we're here to talk about Russian uh, IL-20s and TU-214s, Russian spy planes. I remember, Tim, nearly three years ago, there was an IL-20 shot down as it uh, left Syria. Can you tell us a little bit more about that and what happened? This is the famous shootdown in September 2018 when there was an Israeli air raid taking place on the Syrian city of Latakia, which of course is very close to the Russian main airbase in Syria. And one of the IL-20Ms that is almost permanently forward deployed to Syria was making its final approach to land at the Russian airbase and got caught up in this 
fracas between the Syrian air defences and this Israeli airstrike. And the Syrian missile operators from an S-200 battery apparently mistook the Russian plane for being part of the Israeli air raid, and they let rip with their missiles, and the Russian plane got caught up in the crossfire. Now, the truth of that, we don't really know, because the Russians and the Israelis and the Syrians all put out their rival views, which actually getting any independent evidence to prove one way or the other is very difficult. No, I remember at the time the Israelis actually put out a notice saying, well, you didn't provide any warning that you were going to be operating out of Syrian air defences. So that was strange that the Israelis should come out and say that. Well, the Israelis and the Russians have a hotline in which almost every day they tell each other what they're doing, like the same way the Russians and the Americans and British and NATO, the anti-ISIS coalition, tell each other what they're doing. And um, the Russians claim that the Israelis didn't give them enough warning that their air raid was about to happen so they could clear their planes out of the way. And who knows? Anyway, but so, you know, everybody was blaming everybody else. And reportedly, the poor schmucks who fired the missile got taken out in the shot. But who knows? No, no, that's right. And of course, very interesting, the Russian Air Force, while the Russian Air Force pilots and air crew are flying it, it's not Russian Air Force operators in the back, is it? Well, this comes down to the organization of Russian military intelligence. The Russian Aerospace Force is distinct from the GRU, the main directorate of intelligence, which is run by the Ministry of Defense. Yeah. And the GRU controls every aspect of intelligence gathering by the Russian armed forces, from spy planes to spy ships to secret agents to signals intelligence by ground-based locations, satellite intercepts, all that stuff. And it's all controlled centrally and brought together in sort of central analysis organizations. And the aircraft are just one platform in that constellation of intelligence gathering. So you have the pilots, from what we understand, are Russian Aerospace Force pilots, but all the guys in the back, the analysts, the linguists, the signals intelligence technical experts, they all come from the GRU SIGINT organization. And of course, we know a GRU because they were involved in the, uh, the poisoning at Salisbury. Right? Oh, yeah. They have a sort of this you know, James Bond reputation for the cloak and dagger <laughs> secret agent stuff. But yeah. much like you know, in the West, intelligence now is predominantly technical, involving signals intelligence, communications, intel- you know, using machines and monitoring all the stuff that we know from uh, GCHQ and that kind of thing. Yes, yes, that's right. And, and of course, the IL-20 was uh, well ahead of its time when it was developed, wasn't it? This goes back to the 1970s, the Soviet yeah. Union, and the, when the GRU still existed and operated then. And the IL-20 was a multi-sensor platform. It had, obviously, SIGINT systems. It had electronic warfare to detect radars, but it also had long-range cameras and synthetic aperture radar so it could get 3D radar images in bad weather or optical pictures in good weather. So the crews could use those different technologies to try and home in on the target to provide a multiple intelligence on a single target. So, for example, the ELINT system would pick up a radar that was transmitting. So they could, on the plane, cue the cameras with the directional data to take a picture of the radar to confirm it was, you know, whatever type of radar they thought it was. And so that sort of 
blending of multiple sources of intelligence on a single plane <laughs> was at the time a very new thing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we we had nothing uh, at that point to, in the uh, what were we flying back in them days? Fifty one Scotland would be flying the comets, wouldn't they? Just about. They were just turning over to the Nimrods. The Americans yeah. had the RC one three five, but it was not until the late nineteen eighties that we got the Rivet Joint, and then. 10, yeah, 15 yeah. years later, the RF got the Sentinel. So you can see Definitely. how the progression of this type of technology, and even now, the US and British haven't merged those technologies onto a single platform. No, no, that's right. And, and the IL-20s, of course, don't appear to be, or any elite-sigint uh, multi-sensor platform spy plane, don't appear to operate with by one unit. Now, this comes back to the GRU overarching control of intelligence gathering, in that they don't you know, have a sort of structure of regiments and squadrons that you'd find in the traditional Air Force. They are a, an intelligence gathering organization that just happened to use a plane as, yeah. as one of their collection nodes on it. So they're not, or certainly they don't reveal in public that there is the GRU intelligence gathering squadron or regiment. No. All they do is have these planes, the IL-20s, are distributed around Russia and in Syria you know, one plane at a time for a couple of months, and they fire missions in that sort of designated zone. And then maybe when the requirements change, the crisis develops, then the planes get shunted to the new place where they have to operate. So you yeah. can, if, if you study the sort of the footprint of these, where these planes, you can see them on satellite imagery, it's like a hub and spoke system where they have a central location where some of them come back to in the center near Moscow at Kubinka Air Base. But on the outer fringes of Russia, you have one plane in Baltic states, one or two planes in the Black Sea, one plane in the Far East, a plane or two planes in Syria, and they sort of shuffle them around between these forward operating locations. Yeah, I mean, the T214 is the successor, really, isn't it, to the IL-20? Well, it was billed as that, and they built two of them 2013, 2014, but they've only built two, so they've not launched yeah. a fleet-wide renewal to buy, you know, one-for-one one replacing the IL-20s. So there's not a sort of a major pro... It certainly doesn't appear to be one to replace them one-for-one. One. So these ones you're referring to, the TU-214R, the mullet, as NATO yes. calls it. Yes. This is the one that's got radars, it's got SIGIN, it's got comment. So it's a more modern, certainly a more modern platform. We're not sure about the vintage or the capability of the sensors. They may just be the same ones on the IL-20, but it certainly seems to be a more modern platform. Yes. The IL-20s were built between 1968 and 1974, so they're all a bit vintage. Yes, yeah, that's right. And, of course, the TU-214s are built by Kazan, but they're integrated with lots of different uh, Russian specialist systems. It's very interesting that the TU-214R at least one of them still appears to operate from the Kazan factory. And it, right. it's been tracked by, uh, on Flight Finder Tracker Systems, the famous website, flying over Syria, around the Baltic states, flying around the Ukraine from the Kazan site. So, you know, there seems to be a strong industry operational linkage that maybe, we don't know this, but maybe, you know, they're continually upgrading the stuff. They're sorting in new equipment when they need it, you know, and they yes. keep it at the factory where they have all the technicians who can do all that smart stuff. Okay, yeah, and of course, they often are seen heading off to Japan as well, have been seen in Japan, and I think in uh, 2016, both of them deployed to Syria. 
not yeah. sure it was the same time, but they were both seen there, yeah. and they're, yeah. they're regularly flying operations out to yes. the Syria base. They do fly a lot of the time around to Syria, as you say, 2016, they were spotted there. They also fly a lot of time around um, Ukraine. That's a Black Sea region. That's a big focus for Russia at the moment. And they yeah. have been seen flying up and down the border of Finland and around the Baltic states as well. So you know, those are the crisis yeah. moments of our time. So it's not a surprise that the Russian no. military intelligence is interested in what's going on in those theatres. Of course. And of course, it isn't just the 214R, is it? There's also the uh, Open Skies, uh, TU-214ON. Yes. This appears only to be equipped with cameras. And certainly under the treaty, the Open Skies Treaty, you know, they were only allowed to have a certain type of cameras with a certain performance. And those aircraft themselves were open to inspection to prove that the systems worked as per the treaty. So a bit more is known about the capability of those aircraft. And they are yeah. you know, pure sort of photographic platforms so far. Yeah, they were using uh, military cameras, weren't they, for that role? Yeah. Under the treaty, you're only allowed to have cameras with a certain resolution, a certain you know, focal specifications, and they're only allowed to operate them at certain altitudes. So they have to be you know, rigged in those ways. So of course. they're quite familiar sight flying over Western Europe, the US, up until the point where the treaty seemed to be uh, you know, abrogated by the US and then by Russia. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the Russians are doing no differently from what the uh, RAF and the US Air Force are doing, really, is it? I know we all think, oh, the Russian Air Force are up to their tricks, but, yeah, the Russian Air Force is no differently than the UK and the US is doing, with their, certainly with their rivet joints. Well, I mean, what is quite obvious from following the movements of these aircraft on these flight tracking systems, they operate in international airspace. There is an apparent requirement to operate with transponders on, and certainly both sides, the US, the Russians, the UK, and they have a requirement, they have an ability to turn the transponders off if they're engaged in you know, super secret missions or in, in dangerous locations yeah. but most of the time they choose to leave the transponders on because they want the other side to know they're watching them they yes. want the russians to know that they're watching what's happening in crimea or the donbass or syria and likewise the russians want the british and american to know that they're watching them as well it's a sort of mutual you could call it an intelligence standoff yeah. or a confidence building thing that the thing that creates instability and crisis and conflicts is when one side or the other think they can get away with something. They, yeah, they'll try and yeah. pull a fast one. And um, by having this um, transparency from these aircraft flying around is a confidence-building measure in a perverse sort of way. Yes, I remember back in April uh, when the Russians had this big exercise on the Ukrainians' uh, border and uh, we covered it in the Air Force Monthly in the July issue, that there was a 51 squadron there, RC-135, seemed flying right over the top of the, of the manoeuvres. And someone, one of the local guys there, took a photograph of it for us, and we published it actually in that issue. So very, very interesting to see 51 squadron flying over the uh, top of what was going on with the Russians during that week or so. I mean, all during that period, on almost every day of that period, from late March to the end of April, there was a British, American, or NATO rivet joint, Global Hawk, EP3, 
airborne over the Black Sea, Eastern Ukraine, Crimea region, almost continuously. You know, yeah. they organized a coalition of the willing amongst all the nations with these capabilities and organized a rotor of when the aircraft that would be airborne in that theater. So there was continuous coverage of what was going on. Right. Was uh, the NATO unit at Siganelli using global Yes, also? yes. They were. Really? They flew some, but they were only, um, they haven't quite got, you know, up to full speed yet. No. So, no, so they no. flew a couple of missions, but yeah. you had the, um, the American Global Hawks. They were airborne almost every two or three days. In between them, you'd have rivet joints, British or American. You'd have EP3s. And yeah. there's also some U.S. Army contract aircraft that are based in um, Romania who flew a couple of missions, but then sort of smaller planes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And also you had the American J-Stars from Ramstein. They flew some missions as well. So you okay. had a, a constellation of different platforms, different capabilities at some point in the theater, providing overlapping you know, monitoring of what's going on. Of course. It's a fascinating subject, Tim, and uh, thanks for finding the time to chat You're to welcome. me about it. And You're we'll welcome. We'll do it again sometime. Pleasure. <laughs> for our listeners, if you want to know more about the Russian spy plane technology, check out the upcoming October edition of Air Forces Monthly. And for all your air domain news, visit the Key Aero and Air International websites for now until next week. Thanks for tuning in. This has been a podcast from Key Aero, your aviation destination. Remember, visit www.key.aero for more of the same. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to catch up with you again soon.